0: Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any accursed, but the throne of of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. night will be no more, they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. They will reign forever and ever. And amen. Uh, a quick summary from chapter 21 that we looked at last week. Um, John describes to us the kingdom that is going to be fully consummated. Fully revealed uh, with three main features. First is the uh, the new city in which people, the people of God, will dwell. Uh, not only do we see there a vision of the bride, but uh, actually a vision of the bride city, described as a, a cubed shape city with walls over 200 feet thick. Meant to be impregnable. I mean, that's the imagery. There'll be nothing left to attack it, but that's the imagery uh, of of security, eternal security. Uh, The dimensions speak, um, indeed, uh, of security. We see its splendor. We see its radiance that comes from the glory of God himself, the light of the Lamb. In verses 18 to 21 of of chapter 21, its gates are made of pearls. And it's there in the midst of brilliant jewels that make up the foundation of the walls. And, and the stones are reminiscent of, of the priestly representation of the saints embedded in the ephod of the, uh, of the, of the priest. You can, you can see that in Exodus 28, 15 to 21. The gold, of course, reminds us of Solomon's temple. Um, you can see... Uh, a nice description of that in First Kings chapter 6, verses 20 to 22. And then here in the new heaven and new earth, the worship of God will obviously be pure. No source of evil is left. And it's an international gathering of peoples, God's people. The nations, verse 24 and 26 of chapter 21, will walk there. And this, of course, is the ultimate expression of God's promise to Abraham when he said, uh, Through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The Father here of many nations. And here these many nations are are gathered at the consummation of the kingdom. There's no temple there because everything is temple. All right? Did you get that? That's the key word of the day. Everything is temple. Third, we see that it's all created for his glory, everything is new. Nothing threatens, there is no curse. We see that in chapter 21, verse 23. The lamb who was slain, he borne the curse. He bore the wrath. He became a curse. There are no tears there because the son has borne them on behalf of his people. Chapter 21, uh, we were introduced uh, to the vision of the new Jerusalem in all its splendor. That's what we looked at last week. Now in chapter 22, um, John begins with a a continuation of the same theme. So having seen something of this unimaginable um, grandeur, uh, the structure of this new city come down from out of heaven, uh, the the description given to John here, as it continues goes back to the opening chapters of the Bible, back to creation itself. In verses 1 through 5, John depicts the new heavens and in, in the new earth um, in, in terms of a restored, glorified Eden. A restored, glorified Eden. So, in other words, the Bibles come full circle. The tree of life appears once more, We read about the tree of life in Genesis, and here we see it again in the Revelation. So the wilderness then is is transformed into a garden. When when Adam sinned by eating from the uh, forbidden tree in Genesis 3, God punished him. And he sent he and his wife into exile out of the garden and consequently from the tree of life. And at that moment, Adam and all of his posterity, all of his offspring, lost eternal life in a good and plentiful land. The curse was pronounced, the curse came, but it did not come without a glimmer of hope. For there was God. God promised that the seed of the woman would defeat the the seed of the serpent, providing hope that, that paradise, this paradise, would be once again regained, only better. Amen? Only better. And then the rest of Scripture, from Genesis 3 to where we are now, the rest of Scripture simply narrates how the Lord moves to restore Eden. This new Jerusalem will be Eden-like, only much, much better. That's the picture. In Revelation 21 and 22, we see John's vision described as, as a temple garden a temple garden, a city that's garden-like. It's a glorious garden in the shape of a temple. And specifically, it's the Holy of Holies that is garden-like. The whole thing is the Holy of Holies. And we're there with our groom, the bride of Christ, which is the temple of the living God. So this final end-time temple will, will fill the entire cosmos. Okay, now, uh, one theologian by the name of G.K. beale you've heard me uh, quote from him a number of times. Uh, he wrote a book entitled The Temple and the Church's Mission, and his thesis there is this, that the Old Testament tabernacle and temple were symbolically designed to point to this cosmic eschatological reality. That God's tabernacling presence, formally limited to the Holy of Holies, was to be extended throughout the whole earth. Finally and fully consummated here in this temple garden, the new heaven, the new earth. Now, if you think about this, the construction of the temple, the temple on earth, was decorated with beautiful garden motifs. Have you ever read the description of the design? of the temple itself, well, you see garden themes all through it. And you can find these in First Kings Chronicles and Ezekiel especially carvings of palm trees, pomegranates, flowers, we read of the lily work on top of the pillars, carved into gold, wreaths. The nave itself, which is the central part of the temple, was lined with cypress trees. The design given by God comes from his original design in his original garden, the design of the temple. When we read Ezekiel 28, we read that Eden was described as the garden of God, also described as his sanctuary, a sanctuary. So we see there a garden, sanctuary. Now, the temple that we read about In Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48 is most oftentimes interpreted by premillennialists as a future material temple to be constructed in a yet future millennium on earthly Jerusalem soil. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever believed that? Yes, Yes, you have. (laughs) Most of you have, unless you grew up in a reformed, setting. You believe that. Now, their problem there is that they seem to totally miss what John in Revelation 22 is borrowing from. Okay? That is Ezekiel's sneak preview of the garden temple in the new heaven and the new earth. He's, he's given a preview there of what we're reading here in chapter 22 of the Revelation. Now, the closing chapters of of Ezekiel are essential to what John is describing in chapters 21 and 22, okay? Which is a faraway view of the new heaven and the new earth that far exceeds any earthly temple, past or future. So, the great transition of, of temple realities throughout the scriptures take place with the coming of Christ. Now, think about it. God's work of redemption moves out from the original garden, when man was driven out, into the wilderness. And there God gives instructions, as we'll see in the Exodus in a number of months, instructions for a tabernacle. Revealed more thoroughly or more fully through the the instructions given for the building of the temple on earth. On a holy mountain. Pointing to the true temple who tabernacled among us. In John 1, the word became flesh and the word dwelt with us. Literally tabernacled among us. In Matthew 12, Jesus says something greater than the temple is here. Speaking of himself. In Matthew 26, Jesus said, I'm able to destroy that temple, the temple of God, the the material temple, and rebuild it in three days. Amen? Amen? In Paul's writing, temple refers to the church without exception. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16, for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling place among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So that redeeming reality is ultimately and literally fulfilled in Revelation 21 and 22. That is literal. Because that was the intent of God's dwelling place. Now, I want to read an illustration. It's a bit lengthy, but but I think it will help. And it comes from, am I a a Beelite? Well, perhaps. And it comes from his uh, New Testament biblical theology. That's what I'm reading from. This, This will assist. You only wish you could come up with illustrations like this, but. God only gives so many people for the task. Okay, and I'm quoting. Okay, here's an illustration. A father in the year 1900 promises to give his son a horse and buggy when he grows up and marries. During the early years of expectation, the son reflects on the particular size of the buggy that he would like, its contours, its style, its beautiful red leather seat, and also the size and breed of horse that would draw the buggy. Now, perhaps the father even had knowledge from early experimentation elsewhere that the invention of the horseless carriage was on the horizon. But he coined the promise to his son in familiar terms that the son could readily understand. Years later, say, in 1925, when the son marries, the father gives the couple an automobile, which has since been invented and mass-produced. Is the son disappointed in receiving an automobile instead of a horse and buggy? Is this a figurative or a literal fulfillment of the promise? In fact, the essence of the Father's word has remained the same. A convenient mode of transportation. What has changed is the precise form of transportation promised. The progress of technology has escalated the fulfillment of the pledge in a way that earlier could not have been conceived of fully by the son when he was young. Nevertheless, in light of the later, later development of technology, the promise in, is viewed as literally and faithfully carried out in a greater way than could have earlier been apprehended. The substantial essence of the new temple is still the glory of God. However, that glory is no longer confined within the material building, but instead is revealed openly to the world in Christ. And his subsequent dwelling through the spirit in the worldwide church is the temple the progress of god's revelation has made the fulfillment of apparent prophecies of an architectural temple even greater than originally conceived by finite minds above all in john's portrayal of the consummated condition of the new heavens and earth he says i saw no temple in it because the lord god the almighty and the lamb are its temple Whereas the container for the divine glory of the Old Testament often was an architectural building, in the new age, this old physical container will be shed like a cocoon. And the new physical container will be the entire cosmos. We see this? Amen. Amen? The ultimate essence of the temple is the glorious divine presence. If such is to be the case in the consummated form of the cosmos, would this not begin to be the case in the inaugurated phase of the latter days? Okay, now, the glorious divine presence of Christ and the spirit among His people composed the beginning form of, the, of this eschatological temple. Thus, we see temple prophecies such as Ezekiel 40 to 48, Isaiah 54, Ezekiel 37, fulfilled in Revelation 21 to 22. Vision, a vision in the sense that this vision prophetically depicts the time when the intended and universal cosmic design of Old Testament temples, including that of Eden, will be completed or accomplished. In this light, these prophecies are not merely analogical to the new creation or allegorized by John. They are literally fulfilled. This is the temple of God in glory. Amen? Amen. That's rich right there. So Jesus and his church are the true end-time temple. Okay, He and his bride fulfill the temple's true meaning. And as Beale says elsewhere, I don't know where he said this, Jesus is the very meaning for which the temple existed in the first place. It's in one of those two books. You can go find it yourself. <laughs> now, notice as we move on. Back to the text. There, there are here a number of symbols... Taken directly from Genesis two and Genesis three, the water of life no notice flows out from the throne of God, watering the new city so just in it just, this is just as Eden had been watered from the great river, the river of life will throw will flow from the throne of the Father and the son verse one, and John here is alluding to Ezekiel. You mark this down, 47, verses 1 through 12. Where the river river there, and that vision given to Ezekiel, flows from the uh, eschatological or final temple for which he's been given a vision of. Okay? Now, the the vision of this river that John sees, um, earlier portrayed in Ezekiel 37... This is where, in the Old Testament, we're given a glimpse of this. Now, when Ezekiel sees the river, you can go read this on your own later, uh, there's an angel measuring it a thousand cubits at a time. Okay, And as he moves, he makes his way down the river. It it is first ankle deep, then it's waist deep, and then it's so deep that that it's deep enough to swim in, and then it's just too wide and it's too deep. Okay? And then this river, as he follow, follows it, flows into the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea is no longer dead. It's given life. It becomes fresh water. So it's now habitable water where creatures can live and creatures can flourish. So it's pictured here as, as a life-giving stream that flows from the throne of God and from the Lamb. Now, if we compare Scripture with Scripture, we soon realize that the Holy Spirit is often likened to water. Amen? In John chapter 4, Jesus said to the woman at the well, Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give shall never thirst. In in John chapter 7... Um, On the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, where tradition tells us that the priests would pour out these large vessels of water down the steps of the temple, it was at that moment that Jesus cried out on the last day of that great feast, saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come unto me and drink, right? For whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow streams of living water. So John is telling us here, beloved, that we must not be looking for a physical building rebuilt on earthly Jerusalem. Instead, the true temple of God is in Christ. Notice on either side of the river, there's a tree of life. No longer do cherubim stand with flaming sword to keep God's people away. Amen? So the abundance here of both trees, full of fruit, indicates that life is restored throughout creation. Far more bountiful than Adam ever could have imagined through the finished work of Jesus, the Son of God. In verse 2, notice, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. So we ask healing. Does that mean there's sickness here? What does this mean? Are those brought in from the nations? Do they need healing? No. This is a picture of the curse due to man's sin. This is what, we, this is what afflicts us now, beloved. Amen? This is what we suffer from now. But once and for all, it will one day be lifted. We see that in verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. So its leaves have brought healing. The nations are brought in. In in all manner of, of racial or cultural or political divisions are removed. The people of God truly are one now. Without any tainting of sin. No suffering. So we will truly be one. Never go hungry again. And God God will give us all good things. With no cost and no limit. Amen? No limit. And here in this glorious paradise, we will reign with God forever and ever. Verse 4. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. This is known as the, the beatific vision, to, 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 to behold God in all his glory, his own people, which is presently impossible. Remember when, when Moses requested to see God's glory? God said, no one can see me and live. Why? Because he's a consuming fire. Our present condition Okay? In this present condition, we're not fit to see him like this. We will be consumed. But here are the worship of the Lord will be face to face. in the brilliance of what the scripture says is everlasting day. Face to face. Nothing will obscure, obscure his glory. Nothing will distract our worship. Are you distracted during worship? Oh, yeah, you are. Right, you are. If not by phones, in your own mind. Amen? If not by children, in your own mind, you're distracted. We all are. There'll be no distraction here. For now, Paul said, we see in a mirror dimly. We see through a dirty windshield. You ever notice that? Like you will wash your car, and it still looks clean on the outside. But there's this film developing on the windshield, and you don't realize it until you hit the little button with the wiper washer thing. You go, wow, it was kind of foggy. Look at that, right? We see through a dirty window, but then, then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Notice his name will be on their foreheads. Just as those who are marked on the forehead or their right hand with the mark of the beast, which is a symbolic mark. Amen? Symbolic. It's a mark that governs their thoughts. It governs their, their worldview is governed by what, how they think and what they do. Head, hand. Their thinking and their actions. It's symbolic. God's people here have their name on his forehead, on their forehead. Now, elsewhere, Scripture says that God's people are sealed. Amen? You're sealed now. Okay? You're, you're protected now. Now, you're marked as His own. Symbolic. Now, when we think through this, we, we, we think about the fact that we are currently in union With our Lord and Savior. We're we're, we're in union with Christ Jesus. By way of regeneration and and the gift of faith. We are in union with Almighty God. Sanctification, that is godly living and holiness, that is the Christian life. is, Is a form of living out our union with Christ. We're living out our union with Almighty God. And we seek to make plain. That we have a union with God through Christ. We seek in sanctification to manifest the reality of this union. Amen? Amen. It's the the experience that we have with God throughout life. We want to manifest the reality of it. And there are varying degrees of success in that sanctification. Amen? Amen? It's made more visible at certain times than it is at others. When you're yelling at your kids, it's not so visible. Or when kids are disobeying their parents, it's not so visible. When spouses are fighting and arguing, it's not so visible. It's amazing how it's so visible on Sunday, isn't it? (laughs) Here, here, here in this text, our union with Christ is incredibly visible. So much so that his name appears on our forehead. Owned. Purchased transformed, justified, sanctified, yes, and now glorified. Glory. Verse 5 there, the theme of no more night, no more lamp, no more sun, is a recap of chapter 21, verses 23 and 24. We still see recapitulation. There's no night as when evil lurks. Evil evil lurks in the alleys and around the corners and in the dark. Not here. The Lord is the light and he forever shines. Manifest presence of his glory. And then in verse 6, we move to the epilogue uh, of the book of Revelation. We see some, some, some concluding remarks and some exhortations. He said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God, the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. So John wants us to know that however strange the visions may have seemed to be, that he's given throughout, that they have been faithfully recorded. He did see these things. These were given to him, shown to him. And, and, and the scripture says these things are trustworthy and true. And behold, verse 7. I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the word, the words of the prophecy of this book. So, what do we see at both ends of this book? We're warned. Chapter 1, verse 3. And we're warned again here in chapter 22 that the time is near. The time is near. Now, did this mean to those to whom this letter was originally addressed that all of this will come at the last seven years of history? No. Not if we read the Revelation correctly. Amen. We've been trying to press that for four years. That's when we started this thing. We did take a little break. So many of the exhortations that we saw in the prologue, in the beginning of the book, we, we see here in the epilogue. So these words are meant to encourage. They're, they were meant to encourage um, John who was exiled to an island for proclaiming the truth of Christ. This letter, these letters were written to encourage uh, a people who were exiled, who were pressed out, who were pushed out, who were beheaded, persecuted, for the name and sake of Christ. So the, the, the promise comes to a people under pressure like that, that his coming is near. So how are we to understand this same promise after two millennia? Right? That's typically what people ask when they want when to they, when they take their presuppositional views and press them into the text. Well, it's quite simple because the New Testament teaches us that the death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ ushered in the last days. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we are told, Scripture is emphatic, that we are living in the last days. The end of the ages, Hebrews 9:26, has already dawned. The last days, Acts 2:17 began at Pentecost. In other words, this is the last lap of human history. Yeah, it's, two, it's a 2,000-year lap thus far, but it is the last lap. And, and however long that lasts, from our perspective, okay, from our Lord's perspective, it's very soon. Amen? Therefore, any Christian living in any age is able to receive the exhortations, the encouragement, the blessing from this book. There is one significant redemptive event that is yet to take place. It's called the second coming. You, you, you just can't find a secret rapture in there. Uh, look, I'm not poking, but you just don't find it. You can press it in there. And say it's inferred. But it's not there. So from this perspective, the return of our Lord Jesus Christ is always near. Amen? It's always near. Verses 8 and 9, we see again misdirected worship of John, who's the recipient of this vision. I think I'd probably have done the same thing. And before we look down on John, we do the same thing. It's hard enough for us not to worship those who are intelligent, smart, and gifted on earth, let alone an angel with the reflected glory of God. <laughs> right? this, this angel who serves as the guide to this vision. So once again, John is overwhelmed, and his instinctive response is to fall down and offer worship to this angel in much the same way he did back in chapter 19 and verse 10. But angels are always loyal defenders of God's prescribed manner of worship. Amen? They never receive glory that is not due to them. And he quickly says, don't do that. And angels throughout the scriptures, we often read, are saying two things. Get up and don't do that. Right? So they fall down by the reflected glory of God shown off of them, reflected off of them. Don't do that. Angels are entirely intolerant of any form of worship that is not correct worship. If they would only make a couple visits today to some churches throughout our country, just a couple, it would actually end up being very many. Now, we mustn't forget in the first century when this was written that idolatry was a major problem in Asia Minor in the Asia Minor churches, Amen. Some of the letters, uh, um, in chapters two and in chapters three, chapters two and three reveal that, because that was the warning. Moving on, because we're wow, verse ten. John is told there, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. This is the very opposite. For which the Lord said to Daniel, in Daniel 12, verse 4, do not seal up, or I'm sorry, seal up this book. But after the prophecies of Daniel were fulfilled, the seal could be broken. John here is living in a time when all the prophecies of Daniel had been fulfilled. Do not seal up the book. 2 Corinthians 1.20. It's very simple. All the promises of God find their yes in Him, Christ. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. All of the answers of prophecy find their yes in Christ. All of them. Amen? Amen. Glory. So all the promises of God's deliverance have come to their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, the next, great, the, the next great event on God's redemptive calendar is only the second coming. This is it. That could be today. That'd be nice. It could be another thousand years, but it's still the last days. It's the last lap. Verse 11, let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. Now the background of that verse also comes from Daniel chapter 12 verse 10 that reads, many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. So what, what Daniel saw in the future, John sees in the present. Not to be sealed. Believers throughout this present age, Christians throughout this present age, will differen- differentiate themselves from those who are not Christ. And they will differentiate themselves from those who claim to be Christ, but they're not. Amen? John says, in the end, it will be clear who those are the demonstration of their faith and their allegiance will be made fully manifest. Those that are not, likewise, their true allegiance to the dragon will also be revealed for what it is. To do wicked is to continue to do wickedly for eternity. So at the end of the age, all of God's judgments will shown to be holy, righteous, good, and just. Verse 11. My reward is with me. I will give it to everyone according to what he has done. This is not a statement of justification by works. Amen? It is not. This does not contradict the rest of Scripture. It doesn't contradict the earlier portions of the revelation itself. He's speaking here of the response of faith. The response of faith that they have made, that, that Christ's followers have made. So there's a pattern. For those who profess Christ, there's a pattern of good works that invariably follow a profession of faith. Anyone can just say. Amen? And then this pattern will be not only revealed, but also rewarded on the day of judgment. And then in verses 12 to 13, we see that Jesus is Lord over all created things, which lie between the beginning and the end of time. He is Lord, he is Alpha, he is Omega, he's the first and the last. So when Jesus promises to return soon, he's he's directing all of human history toward that end. His second coming. Or as verse 16 puts it, if you look at that, I am the root and offspring of David in the bright morning star listen to Isaiah 60 arise arise shine your light shine for your light has come nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn jesus of course is the one to whom david's royal kingship pointed he is the alpha and the omega So here we see that what God promised to Abraham also, that those who bless him will be blessed, those who curse him will be cursed. Those who do righteously will continue to do so, those who do wickedly will continue to do so. Verses 14 to 15 is God's elect receive their eternal inheritance. Those whose names are not written in the book of life face the curse of eternal punishment. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Everyone who freely and willfully rejects the salvation that is offered in Christ and in Christ alone are outside. And they will be outside forever. Those who do not believe the gospel remain forever outside of this heavenly city, suffering the wrath of God and confined to the lake of fire forever. So, having come to the end of the book of Revelation, the book ends with both a promise and an invitation. Rightly so. Amen? Now, he's going to return for his people at any moment. Behold, he says, I am coming quickly. Again, that could, be, that could be today. That could be in a thousand years. But make no mistake, from God's vantage point, it's soon. And at his coming, he will judge the world. He will raise the dead. He will make all things new. So it's fitting, then, that the Bible closes with an invitation. Notice. Notice. Whoever's thirsty, let him come. Whoever desires, let him take the the, the free gift of the water of life. And then a warning. I warn everyone who hears these words, the prophecy of of the book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. Verse 18. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and the holy city, which are described in this book. And he who testifies of these things says, Surely I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. So those are solemn words of warning right there. Often ignored. For 2,000 years, they've been ignored by many. But God will not tolerate any tampering with his word. None at all. The word that he has revealed shall not be tampered with. And the canon is closed. Amen? This is the measuring rod right here. For every thought, every worldview, every ism, Amen. This is it. This is the living word of God. Amen. Amen.